A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. Welcome to the New Statesman Politics Podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. Hello, I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor at the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have Rachel Cunliffe, our associate political editor, and Freddie Haywood, our political correspondent. And we've been digging around in your virtual mailbag over the Christmas break, and we've had so many questions in, um, and you guys have picked a couple. Rachel, what's the first question? So this question comes from Alex, who says, how likely would it be for Parliament to introduce a proportional representation system similar to the rest of Europe? Would this even be feasible, given both main parties benefit from a first-past-the-post system? Yeah, so this question came in on YouTube, and we actually had two other questions on this theme as well, so we really wanted to discuss it. Uh, Someone else, Steel Patriot 3683 no less, asked, um, are we likely to need a second Labour term before we can see constitutional reform like electoral reform? Um, And then uh, Mudrelks asked um, about whether or not um, there's any likelihood of a Lib Lab coalition, which is obviously linked to the issue. Um, And I I think this is really interesting, like sort of Labour Kremlinology, because um, at Labour conference last year, it was interesting interesting that you can remember how disciplined a conference it was. And Lucy Powell, who's shadow leader of the House of Commons, um, said in an event that she was personally all for electoral reform, but sort of made the point that it would be a distraction from the upcoming election campaign and you have to win under the current system. But then she said we should be laser focused on that for now and other conversations can come later. And she got into a bit of trouble for saying that and I got into a bit of trouble for reporting it, to be fair, Um, because it sort of hinted at the the sort of she said she sort of said the quiet part out loud, which is kind of Labour's line, which is it doesn't want to talk about electoral reform now, but it does want to keep a little sort of chink of light open for the future. Like its final policy wording at the National Policy Forum on the issue pointed out the flaws in first past the post, but said any proposed change must be carefully thought through. So it doesn't shut it down. That is its line. And I think that's to give it cover if it ever needs to negotiate with the Liberal Democrats to get them to prop up a minority Labour government. So um, it is something that they just don't want to talk about, but also have to leave a little bit of um, space for. Yeah, who's that space for, though? It seems as if it's to placate the membership and also, as you say, to prepare for those negotiations if they ever happen uh, with the Lib Dems. I think Keir Starmer was quite clear at that conference that he wasn't going to include it in the manifesto. It's definitely not a priority for Labour. Uh, The other question about it being in the second term is interesting because the first term, no question, is going to be completely dominated by economic issues and by those big five national missions that Labour have set out electoral reform, I think they'll have justifiably say, look, we tried to bring something about in the past. You know, it was in uh, Labour's 97 manifesto. And then we had the Jenkins Commission. They looked at it and then New Labour sort of dropped it in, in 2001. And then we had the AV referendum back in 
um, 2012, and that was rejected by, I think it was around, was it 70, 68%, something like that of people. Um, so I don't think there's necessarily a big uproar or call for proportional representation from people. I mean, priorities are elsewhere, and I think yeah. Labour will reflect that. And it's interesting because the original question asks about, you know, will there be any impetus in Parliament to actually bring it about if whichever party wins the next election under first past the post. And Rachel, I mean, it's interesting because those who advocate for electoral reform are actually hoping for a slimmer Labour victory because it means that, you know, there, there is a bit more incentive to want to change the voting system in order to deliver a stronger Labour or sort of progressive alliance government in future. Yeah, it's one of those weird paradoxes where to do constitutional reform, you really need a sizable majority because mm. it's such a big thing to change. But if you've got a sizable majority <laughs> under the former system, you probably don't want to change it. Um, I think the question says both Labour and the Conservatives benefit from first past the post. That's true. The Conservatives definitely benefit more than Labour do. If you look at vote share and where votes stack up, because Labour votes often tend to be concentrated in urban areas and cities, loads of votes for Labour kind of don't count because they're already going to win. Um, whereas the Conservatives have a more geographically spread out vote. So that's one reason that Labour are more sympathetic to voting reform than the Conservatives. And then for the other parties, like the Lib Dems are pushing it really hard. The Greens are pushing it really hard. Reform UK are pushing it really hard from the right. When I spoke to Richard Tice, that's his key aim, like long-term goal is to get Labour and the Lib Dems to kind of work together to have some kind of proportional representation. The smaller parties say it's not fair and they make a really strong case for wasted votes and how vote share doesn't map onto MPs. You look at like the SNP get a relatively low vote share but a high number of SNP MPs because all their votes are concentrated in Scotland. You know, if the Lib Dems get that same number of votes, they don't end up with the same number of MPs. Um, but I think it's really important that when parties look at vote shares under first past the post and try and map on how many MPs they'd get under proportional representation, they, they don't get too carried away with that because the voting system also impacts how people choose to vote. And if you know that you're in a marginal and a vote for one of these small parties would be a wasted vote, you're less likely to vote for them. Yeah. And I think the Lib Dems in particular might well find that if we did have a proportional representation system, a lot of people who currently vote Lib Dem because they're the main challenger party. So tactical voting yeah, choices. They yeah. might vote for the Greens. They might vote for independent candidates. They mm. might vote for parties on very specific local interests. So it's not the case that, oh, the Lib Dems got this amount in this year. We could just map that on and then we'd have this wonderful progressive alliance. And actually, if you look at what's happened across Europe, where most countries have some form of proportional representation. I think Belarus is the only European country that sticks with first-past the post. Our model for quite a few things these days. Yeah, <laughs> Belarus in the UK. Um, you'll see that uh, it doesn't benefit left-wing parties. Uh, you, you've seen the right come in, in in various countries. And it really isn't the case that this is like a big left-wing Cause. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think we get a lot of questions about this. And actually, when we write about it, I think we get a lot of interest in it from our readers and listeners because people are assuming who are perhaps more on the left of politics or want to see a progressive alliance that um, a change in the voting system would make it more likely. Maybe at this moment in time, in this sort of particular period of British political history, but everything can change. You know, you can look at a future where lots of London constituencies might reject Labour and go for smaller parties, and then it might not necessarily be the most ideal system um, for Labour. I mean, it was Jacob Rees-Mogg who said that if you try and gerrymander things by making constitutional um, changes, then it often comes back to sort of bite you in 
in the bum, as it did with voter ID, or he was arguing that it did with the voter ID introduction for the Conservatives, because it actually meant a number of older voters um, turned up without the adequate ID. So I, I do think that, you know, obviously in this current landscape, you can see how it would benefit the Labour Party. But I think that's very short-termist thinking. Yeah, completely. I mean, people get very frustrated that they look at the vote shares at, at each general election. They add up the so-called progressive or left-wing ones is greater than the right-wing ones and the yet yeah, the Tories are in government. So that's yeah. where it, lots of this anger comes from. But yeah, we cannot confuse the fact that people want this progressive alliance. In other words, they want uh, the progressive candidate to win regardless of which party they come from with constitutional change yeah. because constitutional change is permanent or at least it will, it will last a very long time. And we don't know whether you know, you'll know you have a reform UK or whoever coming and you and making gains from the system. Exactly. UKIP won 3.8 million votes in 2015 and got one seat. That would have led to them being, if we had a proportional system, having a large uh, number of seats in Parliament. I, I think, yeah, that's the that's the key distinction here. Yeah, I looked up, by the way, uh, what the public think of this. Obviously, yeah. it is a relatively niche issue. It's generally people who are interested in politics, who are interested in, in voting yeah. systems. But um, YouGov has a tracker on mm. this and it goes up to uh, August 2023 and 45% uh, of people want proportional representation. 25 first past the post and 30 don't know. I guess the thing with that is that how many people are actually engaging with the question and if you, like, is it a key priority for voters? And if you go back to the question that says, are we going to wait until the second term? If you look at the list mm. of things that are on Labour's plate, if they win for their first term, this would seem to be very mm. far down the uh, Yeah, do they... Do they actually want it as, as in respect to other things? And also, do they know what sort of system they want? Mm. We voted yeah, on systems. Yeah, because proportional representation is not a voting system in itself. It's, no, it's, it's not. People just want a slightly more proportional yeah. system. Do they want what they have in Scotland, where you've got a combination of first past the post and, the and, then, and then the close list vote or the open yeah. list vote? Do you want AV, which we voted on in 2012? Do you want like the AV plus system that came out of the Jenkins Commission? So it's not clear when people say they want a more proportional system, what they actually want. And then when you try and whittle down uh, what that might be and also retain some of the strengths and benefits of first past the post, such as a strong majority um, government, then it's very hard to do. But with the strong majority government one, I think that's really interesting because that is a key argument in favour of first past the post. Like, yes, it's not exactly democratic, democratically, you know, this this vote shared this number of MPs, but you're more likely to get a majority government that can actually enact things rather than a very broad coalition that argues amongst itself. The last <laughs> Which 10 sounds years, very much like the Conservative Party. Well, <laughs> exactly. The last 10 years haven't exactly been like a glowing endorsement yeah. for first past the post producing strong governments. I think we're going to get another interesting kind of thing to think about with this with the mayoral elections that are coming up in May because that used to be single transferable vote where you could vote for three four candidates in order of like who, who you wanted and if one of them got knocked out your vote then got added to your second choice candidate um, and that's been moved to first past the post and there's so much going on in London with Sadiq Khan who's like quite unpopular Susan Hall who's a very interesting character uh, shall we say and then candidates from the Lib Dems the Greens Reform's got a candidate Lawrence Fox has said he's possibly going to run again like it, it's more than possible that somebody could win that election with like 30% of mm -hmm. the vote and so like the majority of Londoners would have voted for someone else do people think that's a good way to run an election does that make people think a bit harder 
Probably not, in my view, but I think it's worth watching. Yeah, and it's quite something to return to a system that was sort of deemed flawed in the first place. Um, after the break, Freddie, it's your turn to, to pick a question. Can you give us a clue on what's yes, coming up? Yes, Dominic Cummings is back. Dominic Again. Cummings is always back. Again. Classic Dom. <laughs> If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, Freddie, what's your question? This one comes from Paul, who asks, what do revelations about Rishi Sunak consulting with Dominic Cummings tell us about the Prime Minister's relationship with Isaac Levido and Conservative strategy for the general election? So this is referring to uh, meetings between Dominic Cummings and Rishi Sunak last year that only came out uh, in the new year. I think they met twice, um, one before he became prime minister and, and one during. And the reports suggest that they were discussing whether Cummings could mm. help them uh, behind the scenes with political strategy looking ahead to the next election. Nothing came out of it. Cummings wrote on his uh, his substack recently that he had this list of demands he wanted reform on sort of, you know, uh, nuclear strategy, AI, uh, defence procurement, all of his, uh, the things that he wanted to change in government. And he says that Sunak said, no, number 10 say there was no job offer. It was just a, it was just a discussion that they had uh, about strategy. So nothing's really come of it. What was interesting, I think, was uh, that Tory MPs are quite annoyed about it. Uh, and then also, what does it say about Rishi Sunak? The fact that he first had to go to Cummings and then once Cummings made those demands, uh, rejected them. Well, that's the thing. I wonder what it says about um, the sort of... I mean, our question refers to Isaac Levido, who, for listeners who don't know, he's the Tory election director who's credited with Scott Morrison's surprise victory in 2019 in Australia and also Boris Johnson's um, very successful election campaign. Um, he's behind the five pledges, but... Sunak seems to have sort of wavered on those a little bit, kind of bottled it. Does it mean that, you know, the Levido kind of influence is lessening if, if Sunak's going to someone else to try and seek this kind of help, Rachel? Well, the rumours are that Isaac Levido told Sunak at the start of last year, responsible for the five pledges, house inflation, get the economy growing, reduce debt, cut NHS waiting lists and stop the boats, but said uh, it would take time for that the action on those pledges to feed through into poll ratings, mm-hmm. like it wouldn't be a quick fix. Yeah. Um, and that over the summer, Sunak, even though he'd been told it won't happen by summer, looked at the poll ratings and went, ah, this isn't working. I need to do something. And one of the somethings was to go meet with Dominic Cummings. Another one was the fact that he then started talking about uh, a, a big reset Uh, watering down net zero pledges, the whole Tory party conference Mm. theme was about making Sunak the change candidate. Uh, And then obviously he brought back David Cameron. So like there's been a lot of resets that seem to be suggesting that Sunak had a plan but then lost his nerve and didn't feel that sticking to the plan was going to work. And because he didn't stick to the plan, we'll never know. Like had he just kind of stayed steady with that and played it straight. 
would that have succeeded? But I think the Dominic Cummings thing, having the meeting is kind of interesting on a number of levels because the fact that he had the meeting in the first place, regardless of whether he offered him a job or what was agreed or not, and I think we should take anything Dominic Cummings says with a, a pinch of salt. The fact is that that suggests that Conservatives still think that Dominic Cummings has this like magic touch and ability to connect with the electorate or to shape an election campaign that other strategists, even ones who have had huge success, which Isaac Levito has, don't have. And I'm not sure there's really evidence for that. Obviously, Dominic Cummings is very influential in Vote Leave, influential as well with Boris Johnson in, in 2019. But things have changed a lot. 2019 election was about a lot of other factors, big one being Brexit, big one being Jeremy Corbyn. Dominic Cummings' own reputation has suffered massively. The trip up to Durham and Barna Castle still gets mentioned on the doorsteps, according to candidates that, that I've spoken to. People are still really angry about that, even if Westminster has, has kind of moved on a bit. Uh, the the text messages that came out during the COVID inquiry, for people who were paying attention to that, all the expletives, the, the language, the threatening behaviour. Like, I don't think Dominic Cummings is this sort of genius guru who could flick a light switch and suddenly make Rishi Sunak popular. And the fact that Rishi Sunak thought even for a moment that he he might be that kind of suggests a bit of desperation. Yeah, well, it was seen as very risky for Johnson to take Cummings into number 10, wasn't it, in the first place? And so perhaps Sunak, again, is proving that he's not particularly adept at politics. If that's something he was truly contemplating, we don't know if it really was. Yeah, completely. And we've also got to remember that Cummings was a big fan of Sunak uh, when he was Chancellor, yeah. rumoured... The rumours were that he was the one that actually pushed Rishi into position and was the, obviously the one that got rid of Sajid Javid, who was Chancellor at the time. So it's interesting that there's now this divergence between the two. Dominic Cummings is essentially saying that he wants the Tory party to die because he doesn't think it's capable of reforming uh, the political institutions in the country in the way that he thinks. And that's I think that's the interesting thing. It just mm. shows how different the political approaches of the two men are. You've got Rishi Sunak. Well, the, first of all, the, the key thing is that some reportedly... Um, Dominic Cummings suggested a few things that he would um, like Rishi to do to win the next election. It was, you know, massively increasing uh, the tax bracket for the 40p rate up to 100,000. Yeah. Scrapping HS2 was one of them. Uh, it was solving the uh, NHS crises and the strikes. Um, so these things were quite drastic. They're almost trust in their focus on reducing taxes. They also wanted to reduce some of the other taxes mm. that Rishi Sunak had raised when he was Chancellor under Boris Johnson. So that obviously cuts against Rishi Sunak's fiscal conservatism. It goes against his instincts. Um, he doesn't take that many risks. We look at some of the policies, the policy ideas that Rishi Sunak's come out with that aren't just retreating or uh, U-turning on things. You know, yeah. we've got things like maths till 18. Uh, chess. Chess. Chess tables. Uh, you know, changing and reforming A-levels and GCSEs. They're not exactly radical reforming um, constitutional or systemic uh, program. So I think they're just completely different. They have different diagnoses of where the state is. Okay. Well, it's really good to have you back in the studio. It's good to be back. Um, and thanks everyone who submitted questions over the break. Please keep them coming in because we read them all. If you'd like to send one, you can go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. And if you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can drop a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Cunliffe and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back next week. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. This is the story of The One. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.